freedom. Happy July 4th, everybody. Matthew 16, 24, and 25 is our focus for today. And I've got to tell you a true story to launch into this thing. I had a very unique experience a few years ago when I was doing some writing, and I'd met a guy who was going to share with me a lot of stuff about flying because I thought it would help the chapter I was writing in the project I was working on. So I had this lunch with a guy named Mike from Manchester. Mike from Manchester. It's easy to remember because it's alliterative. That was Manchester, Michigan, not England, by the way. Mike used to fly jets for a living, and he would fly them on and off of aircraft carriers. Quite a guy. And then after that, he was thinking, well, I've got some transferable skills. What can I do for a job? So he became a professional airline pilot <laughs> for a cons uh, commercial airlines. So he was sitting in a restaurant with me and he had this little model airplane and he was describing some of the things that they had to learn. And I, I was listening to it enraptured by what he was uh, sharing with me because he had all these personal stories and it was great. But when he got to the end of our one hour lunch together and all of his great stories, he said, you know, it's one thing for me to share with you these stories. And he was right. It was great. I, I liked it because it was firsthand experience. And he was able to tell me in a way that nobody else could. He said, but it's still not the same as experiencing it personally. And I thought, uh-oh, well, what is he talking about? He said, I have a good buddy of mine who lives in Ann Arbor, and he's kind of a legend, a local legend around here. Well, the guy that you're looking at on your screen is that guy. That was Mike's friend, Bob. And I just found out this last week that Bob passed away in 2019. He was quite a fella. He was very active in civic organizations in Ann Arbor, and flying was his hobby. It was not his profession, but he was a certified low-altitude stunt pilot, and he had a modified Stearman biplane that was all set up so that you could snap roll and do things very quickly. He had different aileron settings so that they could just go really quickly into what he needed to do, and he had the certification to do all these famous things that you see on air shows below 500 feet in altitude. So Mike said, I'm going to pay for you to go up uh, with Bob in his plane so that you can experience what I've been talking to you about. Well, okay. I mean, how do you say no to that? So we drove out to the little Ann Arbor airport. We met Bob, went into his little hangar. I saw that steerman sitting out on the apron and I thought, oh, this is going to be something. And it was really something to learn from a real stunt pilot what you were going to do and then go up in the plane and do it. And I learned a couple of lessons from that. I'll have to let you tune in next week to find out if we landed safely or not. <laughs> of course we landed safely. I mean, he's a pro. What, what am I saying? But he did some things that I never thought I would ever experience in my life. He took off very smoothly, talking to me through my headset so I knew what to expect. And then he said, okay, you're ready for a loop? And I said, I think I'm ready. And he had talked to me ahead of time, told me how he was gonna have me <clears throat> grunt like that because of the G-forces. And you had to do that because we didn't have pressurized suit. So he got up to a certain altitude. He dipped down really fast to get some airspeed up so that he'd have enough energy to go up and over. And just like you do on a roller coaster, except a much bigger loop, he flew up and over and around, and at the top, you are got enough G-forces that you don't really hang in your harness, but you can feel yourself sort of pull against your harness a little bit, and you're looking straight down at the ground. And then you come up over the top and back, and pretty soon you wind up exactly where you were when you started that loop. And it was amazing. He did everything by the numbers. 
he would tell me, this is the airspeed, this is this uh, setting, and I'm looking at that, and every time I start to pull that up, I know exactly where I'm going to end up, and he did. It was perfect, flawless. And then he did a barrel roll, and that's pretty cool. It's like a perfectly thrown spiral if you're throwing a football, except it was an airplane. And then he did my favorite, which was the hammerhead. That's the maneuver that causes you to rethink what you had for breakfast that morning. That's where you fly up and up and up. And just before you stall, he tips the rudder slightly to the left so that it kicks the plane over and it just falls over on the wing and basically just goes down into a spiral and heads toward the ground. And your stomach is left up there at about 5,000 feet. <laughs> and then when you're spiraling down toward the earth because of your perspective, since the wings are stationary from your perspective, it looks like somebody grabbed the earth below you and just spun it in a circle like a chessboard. And you could see all the little farm fields and things going around and around. And I thought, that's pretty cool. <laughs> but I thought, oh, I sure hope he can pull out of this thing. That's where we start getting into some of the lessons that I thought were applicable, especially as we start learning about true freedom. First lesson, the guy in the front seat is the one in control. I was in the second seat, the guy behind him. He was in the front so he could see everything very clearly. But I was along for the ride and I was enjoying it. But in order for me to really truly enjoy this ride and get the most out of it, I had to trust the guy in the front seat. Lesson number two, in order to pull out of a spiral, this one was really counterintuitive, you have to let go. He explained this before we went up because as I watched him do it, I understood what he was talking about. He said, if you happen to find yourself in a spin, which can happen, in fact, Mike, the guy who had paid for my flight had told me that one time he got into the wash of another jet after they had done some maneuvers together when he was in training. And when you get in that jet wash, it can really foul up the airstream around your airplane. And he started to go into a flat spin. Now this is in one of those fighter jets. He said, but you can pull out of that. You have to know what to do though, so that you can get flying straight and level again. And in this biplane, what you do is you let go of the stick. And he said, it's the most counterintuitive thing because everything in you is screaming. I have to fight against all these forces that are coming at me through this airplane. And there are a lot of forces coming at you. He said, but if you let go of the stick, the ailerons and uh, the tail, everything lines up in their neutral positions. And then you can just gently start pulling up and out and you can fly straight and level once again. He said, letting go of the stick is the hardest thing you can do as a pilot because you feel like it's all up to you to wrestle that thing under control. He said, but pilots have been known to fight the stick all the way into the ground. So what Bob is saying essentially is if you want to live, you have to surrender. And that's kind of the point. Jesus said something similar. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Let me apply this analogy to how a lot of people thought about Jesus when he was alive on the earth. It's uh, really something to know that a lot of people had their own agenda for Jesus. Of course, we know that that never happens today, but it was happening back then when he was alive on the earth. A lot of people enjoyed seeing the big parade when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem not too long before he was arrested and crucified. He came in riding on a gentle donkey instead of a war horse. 
uh, was not the most impressive form of transportation back then, especially for a conquering hero, which is what they thought their Messiah was supposed to be. It would kind of be like an army general leading a 4th of July parade on a moped. And even though a lot of people were cheering for Jesus, most of them had their own agenda in mind. Hosanna, Jesus, come solve my problem. Blessed is the one who comes to fix this financial mess I've dug for myself. Hosanna, come heal me. Hosanna, come overthrow those evil so-and-sos who are running this country. I'm referring to the Romans here. Come make my life a lot more comfortable, Jesus. Hosanna, come take back the temple. Come do the things I want you to do, Jesus. Hosanna. They were thinking, we're glad you're in the plane, Jesus. We really are. It's just that, well, it's our plane. And we want to tell you the way to go because it's our way. But we're happy to have you along for the ride because you're handy if we need something. And while you're at it, could you get me a refill for my coffee? A lot of folks like having Jesus in the co-pilot seat because he's closer in case they find that they really need something urgent if things get so out of control that they have to cry out for help. It's kind of like having a flight attendant on board. Could you improve the situation that I've got going on, Jesus? I'd really like for you to make my life better. I like having you in the plane, but I'd just really rather not have you in the pilot seat just now. See, because if Jesus has control of the plane, that means I'm not in charge anymore. <laughs> I'm not in charge of my wallet, my ego, my ambition, my gossip, my tendency to manipulate others to get my way, my strong opinions. I'm not in charge of any of those things. Jesus is. And that can make me feel pretty uncomfortable. But here's what I learned in that stunt plane that day. With Bob flying the plane, I was fully into what was happening. I was fully alive. I wasn't drifting off to sleep like some of you might be right now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But you know, when you can fly across the country or across an ocean, it's easy to fall asleep. Doing the things that Bob was leading us through when he was flying the plane, you didn't have time to fall asleep. It was incredible. I was fully awake and fully alive. When Jesus is truly in control of our lives, it's not our lives anymore, but we're fully alive and fully awake. And trust is a good thing. The first few minutes after I met Bob, because Mike drove me to the airport and introduced me to him, it was all smiles and jokes and stories from past flying experience from both of them. But then Bob had me step into the straps of a parachute harness, and then he put the other straps over the tops of my shoulders, and he buckled something right across my chest, and he cinched some things up real tight, and he patted my chute and wrestled it around to make sure that there was no gap between the chute and me. And he said, these things are not just for show. If something happens up there, and if it becomes necessary, I'm only going to tell you once to climb out onto the wing and jump. No dilly-dallying and just pull this ring. I'll only tell you once. He said, that's one thing I never joke about. I got it. Uh, he wasn't smiling when he was sharing this information with me, so I got it. And here's the thing about making Jesus the pilot and not just the co-pilot. If he's truly in the front seat, if he says jump, you need to jump. Who's in your pilot seat? That's the question. 
That's what Jesus is trying to share with us in that little passage that we're going to see. It's an important question. Who's in the pilot seat of your life? Have you ever surrendered that seat to Jesus? Or are you still trying to fly it in your own way and in your own strength, wrestling the stick? Is Jesus just doing a ride along or is he flying? Have you ever said to him, all right, Jesus, I am now turning everything over to you. He's really clear about this. Unless you do that, unless you turn your life completely over to him, there's no way you can really fly straight and level. There's no way you can have kind of life to the full that he promises unless you let go of the stick and allow him to fly the plane. Listen to his words in Matthew 10. If you cling to your life, like clinging to the stick, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you'll find it. He puts it another way right here in John 12. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You want a fruitful life? You have to die. You have to die to self. You have to let go of the stick. And then he says it this way, too, in Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And here's the thing. Surrender doesn't mean do nothing. God expects us to make choices, exercise our minds, to be creative, to take initiative, to make a difference, to take on responsibilities. Surrender to him doesn't mean that you become completely passive. It doesn't mean you're a fatalist. Well, I can't change anything anyway. I might as well just let this happen to me. You don't suddenly allow everyone to walk all over you either. You speak truth, but you do it with spirit-empowered, Christ-like character qualities like patience and long-suffering and gentleness and self-control and compassion and love. You can confront, but that's how you confront because you're being transformed into Christ's image. That's what this surrender means. It doesn't mean let go of the stick and then not let anybody else fly the plane. It means you do all those things because you are under his control at that point. When we surrendered our lives and our life's plane, so to speak, to Christ, we're gonna find that often we face difficult, nearly impossible situations. We've all faced a bunch of them in just this last year and a half. But when we trust Christ, he gives us the courage and strength we need to face those things and to do so with purpose and with hope. Surrender is really a powerful act. It's my recognition that there is a God and it's not me. It shows that you believe that there's somebody more capable than you are. Surrender is an act of trust. What would have happened if I had started to panic when Bob started flying that biplane up into a stall, and if I had unbuckled my seatbelt, climbed out of the back seat, started reaching over, trying to grab the stick out of his hands and wrestle that plane into submission, I don't think it would have ended well. <laughs> I had to trust the guy in the pilot seat. I had to trust. Why? Because I knew that he knew better. He knew more than I knew. So I knew he knew how to keep things from spinning out of control. Surrender is my recognition that there is a God and it's not me. When Moses was standing in front of the burning bush, 
And he says, well, God, what happens if Pharaoh asks, who sent you? God answered, tell him, I am that I am. Surrender means I'm not that I'm not. And I certainly understand that. I acknowledge that on a very daily basis. God's wisdom is just so far greater than mine. His purposes are greater. Everything about him is greater. I'm not that I'm not, but he is that he is. Surrender, by the way, in case you haven't figured this out, is not a popular subject. Not everybody gets on board with the die to self message. In our culture, just about everybody likes this message. No matter how bad you mess up, my friend, God still loves you. And that's true. But they love that message. I like to preach that message. I usually get a lot of good feedback from that message. People come up to me after messages like that. and They go, Pastor, that was great. Man, I, am, I enjoyed that. I appreciated that. I needed that message. Thank you for that encouragement. Feels good. But then you get to this message. You have to surrender if you want true freedom. And for some reason, I don't get the same amount of feedback or the same kind of feedback after that one. A lot of folks don't really resonate with that message. But that, my friends, is exactly the message that Jesus is teaching us and that he taught us through his life and death and resurrection. That's the kind of life he's talking about. Here's the message that doesn't quite get as many likes on the church's social media stuff. You are selfish at the core. You're sinful and you're stubborn and you're often self-promoting and your desires are often self-serving and you're often blind to your own selfishness and your own brokenness. But the truth is you're sinful and you are broken. And you're also often blind to the fact that your self-motivated choices often hurt other people. You're quick to recognize your own hurt when somebody hurts you, but you're pretty slow to recognize how you hurt others by the way you respond. Can you see why this message might not be as popular as God loves you no matter how bad you mess up? <laughs> and yet, this is exactly what Jesus said. He said that we all need to submit to him. We have to submit to God. You need to surrender your heart and your will, and you need to confess your sin, and you need to admit that you are broken. The only way to find your life is to lose your life. Not everybody gets excited about that message, but it's the message that leads to real life. Another good lesson. You just can't wrestle your way to victory. You have to surrender yourself to victory. This is at the heart of Jesus' lesson for us, his teaching. It's all about surrender. I couldn't surrender to Bob Barden's control unless I knew that he really had my best interests at heart. Now, admittedly, I had to admit that this analogy can break down just a little bit when you think that if he crashes, he's dead too. <laughs> so he's got a little self-motivation to want to make sure that we get down safely together. But the point is this. I knew that he wanted to give me the best ride possible, and I had asked him for lessons so that I could apply them, because I kind of wanted to be able to use them in a sermon someday. That's handy. He wanted me to learn things that would make my life better, too, because these are applications that will serve me well. He had my safety, my well-being, the lessons that I wanted to learn. He had all that in mind. He wanted the best for me, and I knew that. And it's the same with Jesus. He wants the very best for you. And once you get that, once you really understand that whatever you give up as you die to self, when you let go of the stick, 
it will be replaced by real life. And then you can surrender and relax into God's grace and just enjoy the ride. Death to self sounds really foreign to our culture, the world's culture. But death to self is really the death to those things that were killing you anyway. Why wouldn't you want to die to the things that were already killing you? I think that's the right kind of death. And that's the kind of death Jesus is talking about. So how do you know that he really cares about you? Somebody said, well, how did you know that Bob Barden cared about you? I met him. I knew him personally. And we can know Jesus. We can know him personally as well. How do we know that he cared that much about us? We can look to the cross. We know that from Romans 5, 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Let me personalize that. God showed his great love for you by sending Christ to die for you while you were still sinning. Life just turns out better when Jesus is in the front seat. <laughs> Have you done that? Have you told Jesus that you want him in the pilot seat? If you try to wrestle your way through your own problems, they'll fight you all the way to the ground. So the best thing to do is just surrender to Jesus. And when you do, ironically, you'll pull out of the spiral and suddenly your life goes straighter and with less turbulence. Here's something that we need to be aware of as well. This surrender is a daily exercise. It's not a one and done. You don't just say a sinner's prayer and you're okay, you got your ticket punched, you don't just get baptized and suddenly you're good for the rest of your life and you don't really have to change anything. Nuh -uh. This is something we have to continually work on. Surrender is constant and it's daily. Today I'm in church, we might think. I'm with God's people. I love that pre-service music that I listen to. I love being around God's folks and I'm looking forward to being with them in person next week. I love God, but tomorrow's Monday. I still love God. But man, things can get tough. There are challenges. Tuesday, sometimes the challenges get worse. And there's a whole bunch of other days left in the week. Paul the Apostle said it like this. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Now, he was thinking about a Jewish audience. You know what they did with sacrifices that it was daily sacrifices for them. He's saying, if you're going to offer your body as a living sacrifice, you needed to do that constantly. It was a daily routine. So you don't just have a one and done experience. Let me use one of my own experiences as an example. I was in my church office, got a call from one of my good buddies. He was also a deacon in a church that I was serving at the time. It was Russ Collins. He started saying some things that sounded like he was being a little accusatory about some of the ways that the senior pastor was using his time. But I, who was the second in command in that church at that time, so to speak, that sounds a little too highfalutin. I was a minister of music. So I wasn't really second in command of anything. I was just this arm-waving guy. But anyway, Russ started expressing concerns because the pastor was also building his house at the time, which he had gotten permission to do. So yeah, he had been out at the building site from time to time, but I knew the pastor. I knew him well. I hung out with him every day. And I knew that he was late into the night working on sermons long after he had gotten back from the building site. And I knew that he didn't keep a regular schedule like some people do, but I knew that he'd been to the hospital until midnight praying with somebody who's having surgery. And I knew that he gets texts and phone calls on his phone. And so he was always accessible. 
And this guy who calls me, Russ, was the kind of guy who went into his office every day. He made stuff for teeth and then he went home and he was always accessible because he was always in his office. He didn't live the life of a pastor. Pastor didn't live the life of this guy. Russ just didn't understand that stuff. So I was trying to defend the pastor because I wanted to really let him know how things really were. But Russ started making things that didn't sound like they were just observations. They sounded like accusations. And I said, well, that sounds a little accusatory to me. And he raised his voice and he said something that wasn't very nice back. And unfortunately, I didn't respond very well. So I raised my voice to the same level as his voice. And he hung up. And I hate that sound, that old sound of coming back through the earpiece of my phone. And I sat there trembling for a minute, and I realized that I was trying to wrestle this thing back under submission, and I was going to fly it into the ground. And so I said a quiet prayer, and I said, God, you've got to take control. <laughs> what do I do? So what I did was, I knew in a minute, with very short time praying about it, that God was saying, you need to drive right over to Russ's house. It was like 930 at night. I normally don't go to anybody's house that late, but the longer this thing would fester, 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 the longer it was gonna rot, rot, rot. And I didn't want that to happen. And so I got in my car, locked up the church, drove over to Russ's house, rang the doorbell. He came to the door in his bathrobe <laughs> and his face was shocked. And I said, Russ, we've had a great relationship. You're my brother and I love you as a brother in Christ. And I don't want this thing that we just started to get in the way of that relationship that we had that was going so well. Can I come in, can we talk? And he opened the door and I came inside. We sat down, had a difficult but necessary and lengthy conversation. It was about 11 o'clock when I left Russ's house that night. But a lot of things had been ironed out. We prayed together before I left. Russ was my best supporter the whole time I was at that church. And I continued to see him at other funerals and events after that fact. And he gave me the biggest bear hugs of anybody you'd ever experience. Here's the thing, I wasn't passive. I didn't just let this thing happen to me. I turned the stick over to God and he's the one who said, you need to drive to Russ's house. That was not my doing, that was Jesus directing my life. He was flying at that point. I didn't have the courage for that. I was shaky, I was dry mouthed. I didn't even know what to say. I just trusted that God would give me the right words to say when I got there and he did. But we got onto the same page, not because I'm a great eloquent harmonizer, not because I'm super at reconciliation, but because God was flying the plane. I was surrendering. And surrender starts with an internal conversation, that prayer with God, between you and God, but it results in outward action. Let me give you a couple of examples from everyday life because this is that daily experience. A married man goes to a restaurant, and the server comes by and she's an attractive young lady. This married man instantly reaches over with his right hand and starts twirling the wedding ring on his left hand on the wedding finger. It has become a habit. Why is that? Because that married man has been surrendering to God daily and consistently. You see how that interaction of surrender becomes an outward action? Or how about this one? 
A lady at work feels embarrassed because she had failed to get one piece of important information from a client and she needed that on an application so they could move ahead with her case. And somebody at work asks her about that missing information. Instantly, a story flashes into her brain. It's a story that would cover her tracks, maybe shift blame, but she knows deep down that it's not a true story. She surrenders. And instead of telling a lie to cover the tracks, she owns up to her mistake. And she said, you know, I'm sorry, that's on me. I meant to call that client to get that information, but I got busy and I just forgot. No excuses. I'll call them this afternoon. In that moment, that's a moment of surrender. She put Jesus back in the pilot seat. Now he's flying. She surrendered, but in doing so, she put Jesus back in the pilot seat and all of a sudden, the plane starts flying straight and level again. She avoided diving into a spiral of deception and guilt. Because that's what happens when you have to cover one lie with another lie and it just becomes a whole series of spirals. So let me get back to this main question. Who's flying your plane? You've got three options as best I can see. <clears throat> you can live with a rebellious heart. You can wrestle the stick. You can fly your plane into a downward spiral and maybe even into the ground. Second, and this one's really tough, but a lot of people try it. You can live with a divided heart. You allow Jesus into the plane, but you keep trying to be the one to fly it. This is a nasty way to live. It's an awful way to live. You keep repeating the same mistakes. You keep finding yourself feeling guilty and miserable because you haven't really put him in the pilot's seat. So the third way is the best way. You live a surrendered life. When you take up your cross and surrender your life to Jesus, he gives it back to you and it's so much better than it was before you gave it to him. And when you do, it's just so much better than wrestling and always feeling guilty and feeling anxious about everything all the time. You gain your life back when you say, God, I don't want to just get you to help me now and then. I really want to give my life to you. I really want to fully surrender it to you. And that's what I'd like to offer for you as I offer this prayer. And if you pray it, you can surrender your life to him as well. Let's pray. Lord, I know what I need to do. That selfish sin nature keeps me from wanting to surrender, but I want to give myself totally to you right now. I want to die to self in order to get my life back. I want you to be in charge of my money, my relationships, my speech, my music, my choice of friends, everything. I want you to take control over the future, that future that can feel so uncertain to me. I want you to take control over that desire for revenge that I've been obsessing over. I surrender. I surrender everything, Lord. I give up. <laughs> Thank you for giving my life back to me when I turn it over to you. In Jesus' name.